0: Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. Today, he had a 27-year career with 17 of them in the private sector as an expert witness. He is one of the world's leading authorities on money laundering techniques, the author and executive producer of The Infiltrator, which covered his two-year undercover infiltration of the Benin Cartel and the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. In addition, he wrote The Betrayal, a two and a half year undercover work of the Cali cartel and his undercover figures in Panama, a U.S. special agent that retired in 1998 and whose work led to the biggest prosecution of bankers and money launderers there has ever been. Please welcome to the show, Robert Mazur. Robert, welcome to the show. Well, thank
1: you very much for the invite.
0: You are welcome. And thank you for your service as well. Thank you. Before we go forward, I want to go backwards. From doing some research, you're an Italian American, as I am myself. Your great grandfather, Ralph Cafaro, ran a sham moving company in Manhattan to transport bootleg whiskey during Prohibition for Lucky Luciano. And also, your grandfather worked in Lucky's outfit. How much do you know about the history there?
1: Uh, I, I I know a pretty good amount about it. Um, it actually had an impact on my life when I when I first uh, began working summer jobs, I was in uh, high school and I, uh, my mom had gotten me a job at uh, what was then open. Now it's closed Brewer dry dock on Staten Island. And my grandfather had passed away phew, probably 10 years before that. So, uh, but through a friend, I I, I got a job and, and I showed up there and nobody really knew who I was because my last name was Mazur. My grandfather was Safaro. So, um, So one of the old timers said to me, how'd you get the job? And I said, well, my grandfather used to work here and um, through some friends, they got me a job. He said, well, who was he now? Everybody um, in that circle had a nickname. So it was two beers. My my grandfather was two beers because every single day he would stop um, at the bar just outside of the doors at the dry dock and have two beers. So, uh, <laughs> and then some probably, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, I said, well, my grandfather, he goes, who was your grandfather? I said, uh, two beers Safaro. He goes, you'd have thought I'd mentioned George Washington or something. <laughs> and, um, about a, two weeks later, the the union boss came over and he said, Oh kid, you're not shaping up today. Cause I was working then them with the carpenters and you'd, Shape up in the morning, they'd assign you to a ship and then you'd go work on the ship. So um, I said, well, where am I going? He goes, well, you're going to go to the excuse my French. You're going to the shit house." And I said, well, why? Why that? And he goes, you'll you'll find out. So I go there and the, somebody's there and he goes to me, listen, just hang out outside. And um, if anybody comes that you don't recognize from working here, especially if somebody looks like they're a cop, you know, just bang on the door. I had no idea what was going on. And, um, so anyway, what I later found out was the bookie was in there (laughs) taking numbers. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) so I find myself in this predicament that my mom had always, always from the day I could first understand how to speak said, you're not going anywhere near any of this stuff. And, um, you know, you're, you're going to go to school and you're going to get an education and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so thank goodness they can't use the same guy for the lookout every day. And um, and so uh, I, I avoided those people from that point on. But uh, that was my first exposure to it, other than, you know, some of the things that I, I saw when I was growing up. You said you got yourself in a predicament. And as we go on,
0: listeners, you'll see that that wasn't the only time he found himself in a predicament in his lifetime. Your background includes being a finance major with accounting experience. You worked in banks and the brokerage firm. Robert, how did you get into law and undercover
1: work? Um, by accident. <laughs> I was in, in college and um, getting near, I guess I was just about getting ready to start my senior year and uh, looking for a summer job. And I went to a jobs board and there was this notice for a co-op position with then an agency then named the irs intelligence division which kind of sounds like an oxymoron but it really did exist and um i didn't know what it was all about i went for the interview and i quickly learned that these were the guys who actually worked with some of the other um law enforcement agencies that did the follow the paper to put al capone away and when I was in the office at that stage as a co-op, you know, basically you made coffee, you did what, you know, photocopying, you, you didn't do a whole lot of anything important, but, but I did, I was in the midst of everything. And I, I was near a, an organized crime group um, and they were working on uh, a big time heroin dealer from the financial side, uh, Frank Lucas and Frank Lucas was at the time, one of the biggest heroin traffickers in New York and they were doing surveillances at a bank aptly called chemical bank. If you're going to be a drug trafficker, chemical bank is probably where you should have your accounts. So uh, they, <laughs> they were uh, they were doing surveillance and they, and they were talking about how um, Lucas's guys were showing up with duffel bags, army duffel bags full of cash. This is a bank that they had been to oh, probably eight months before and almost made a criminal case because of similar cash transactions going unreported for organized crime guys, Italian, uh, traditional Italian Americans. So they made a criminal case on the on the officers and, and on the bank. Ultimately, I believe the bank, but I know the officers for sure. And um, that really grabbed my attention. It was like, my gosh, you know, what's happening on the street and it all goes down to follow the money and that takes you to the command and control And um, this is pretty exciting stuff. And I I was otherwise headed off to be a a CPA and I'm counting widgets for the first few years of my career. And I thought, well, this is going to be a lot more interesting. (laughs) And so um, I decided uh, once I finished the co-op position, I applied for a job and, and I got it. And, um, and I got the opportunity to work on some pretty high profile cases during the first parts of my career um, in Manhattan.
0: I don't want to just,
1: I hate to use the word assume, but I'm going
0: to use that word that my listeners understand money laundering. So can you explain how black money workers launder money?
1: Yeah, it's best if I do it from um, uh, an approach to the statute. And and the statute basically says that anyone that commits an act to conceal or disguise the nature of the transaction, the nature of the, the funds, the source of the funds, knowing full well that the funds came from what is by the statute defined as a, a an SUA i'm not remembering what that uh, stands for but anyway it's a, a specific type of illegal activity one of which is drug trafficking so now if you knew that it came from dirty business and you attempt to conceal or disguise it now conceal and disguise what does that mean well you might take the cash and it into a checking account you might take the cash and put it into a business you might do any type of things but you've taken a step to attempt to conceal or disguise the nature the source of the funds and we can prove that you knew it so usually how do you prove you knew it well in an undercover setting you get recordings with the individuals and when i dealt with drug traffickers Uh, it's, it's really a delicate thing to be able to get. um, And now I just thought of it, a specified unlawful act. That's what SUA stands for. And anyway, so if it's a specified unlawful act, it's a specific type of criminal activity. There's a list, long list of what uh, those specified unlawful acts are, but anyway, so now I'm in an undercover setting and, you know, it's not easy to get guys to talk openly about the source of the money. So, You know, you generally are tiptoeing around it here and there, but you know what? You can't do that. Uh, You can't tiptoe around it because you've got to convince a jury, 12 ordinary citizens, that this person truly knew the source of the funds or that the funds really were drug proceeds. And so I would have conversations with bankers. Uh, I would try to find something that at the time was uh, a current event, like at the time, um, there were um, there was a businessman who was involved with Chrysler, Lee Iacocca, and everybody knew him to make cars. And I would use this term with the bankers and say, you know, if if my clients were here in the room with me, you might mistake them then to be a part of Lee Iacocca's team because Lee makes cars and my clients sell cocaine. And you would sometimes think that, you know, a bomb went off because people would get very nervous about it. But you, you've really got to find a way to be able to prove to uh, people that walk everyday life that uh, these guys know that the money came from a uh, criminal activity.
0: Robert, how big is the underworld money laundering business?
1: Well, I believe that the United Nations on Drugs and Crime and then they first attempted, I think, back in 2012 to measure this through information that came from member nations And their calculations brought it. Now, when we're talking about illicit funds, this could be money that's involved, comes from drug trafficking, illegal arms dealing, pilfering treasuries, um, prohibited conducting transactions with prohibited nations like Iran that might be sanctioned, income tax evasion. You put all of that together and that bubble comes to about two trillion dollars a year seeking secrecy from governments. So that's a lot of money out there looking for money laundering services. A lot.
0: I read this statement to you from professor Kramer at Wagner college. When he said, going to the zoo and watch people feed carrots to the bears. What does that mean to you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was, tra- he was my economics major um, a professor. And, and and what he was trying to do was to explain, you know, how life works. I mean, you you're the bear, you're looking for the carrot. And, and um, uh, you know, that's what life is, is really all about. And, um, and if you want to get people to do something, you got to feed them with the carrot. <laughs> and um, he, it was a simplified way to talk about economics. And really, his, the only thing I really remember, and I hate to say this about Professor Kramer, because he was really a, a great professor, but, but um, I distinctly remember, mostly, supply and demand. And his theory was that if you had a business and you had an equal amount of supply to an equal amount of demand from your clients, you're going to be extraordinarily profitable because you don't have excess um, capital. You don't have you don't have excess supply sitting around that you don't have clients to buy. And that's a, that's a waste of capital. Or if you don't have enough uh, of your goods and you have more customers than you can keep happy, you're going to lose them. So you've got to keep that balance there to maximize your profits. And and frankly, that's how I learned to be an effective money launderer. Um, Because when you're in the black money markets, as I was working with corrupt bankers and businessmen, you're basically doing just that. You're running a business. You have a supply and your supply is narco dollars. And those narco dollars um, are looking to be sold by the narcotics trafficker. Now, sometimes they may only want through brokers. They may only want to get wire transfers sent in U.S. dollars to another part of the world. Sometimes they want more. Sometimes they want, as often was the case in Colombia, they were looking to exchange sometimes the dollars for Colombian pesos. So now I've got to find people who have a demand for dollars and they've got Colombian pesos that the trafficker wants. And traditionally, those are people who suffer in governments that have oppressive capital restrictions. And in this case, they're importers, importers in Colombia, who are trying to get U.S. dollars. If they go through the official routes, it's going to cost them as much as 25% of their money just to get converted from pesos to dollars. They could come to me on the black market and I'll charge them 10%. They're saving 15%. So now I've got my demand clients. And on the other side, I got my supply clients I got my traffickers. So the traffickers are willing to pay us as a black money market group, 15% to get those Colombian pesos. At the same time, the importers are looking to, uh, they're willing to pay me 10% to get the dollars. So I'm in the middle of a million dollar swap. That's 25%. I make 250 grand on the swap. That's pretty good business. And and that's what I was a part of uh, for about five years as I worked within the underworld. You received a lot of
0: training before you went into the underworld and I watched the infiltrator and listeners. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Robert's website, but also to the movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you see it. One of my thought processes, Robert was, I know you have training, but how do you handle high pressure stress situations and remain calm when you have a bad guy literally in your face, threatening you and your family? Hmm.
1: Well, and it does come from training. Um, you've got to have certain, you know, the first part of training as a volunteer, because people can't make you work uh, undercover. No agency is going to force you to do that. Sometimes, unfortunately, um, because an individual speaks a second language or they happen to have a certain look, um, people make the mistake of forcing people or um, really pressuring them to do this type of work without the adequate training. And, and that becomes a nightmare. Um, Because those people are very, very likely to crash and burn. But for me, the first step, because I was blessed to be in an agency that recognized that this is a special training that needs to be done. And this is a special type of work that can really best be done by people who have a certain psychological makeup. And so you take a barrage of psychological tests initially. Somehow or another, I squeaked through that, <laughs> and um, and I was designated to be a, a person who was um, okay to be a, a, a candidate to go through the undercover school. Uh, I think, not to get it too complicated, I think basically what psychologists are looking for is people who see things black and white, right and wrong, not a huge amount of gray area of rationalization of why or somehow something could be potentially right, but it's not, I mean... They're not looking for they're not looking for people who are going to debate in their mind what those what right and wrong really is, really is. So now I go through the undercover school and I was blessed again with tremendous, tremendous former long term undercover agents, the likes of Bobby Delaney, uh, New Jersey State Police, uh, Joe Pistone, former FBI agent, the book and movie uh, Donnie Brasco is based upon, um, who were part of the cadre and, and psychologists as well. were part of the cadre, who really spent weeks uh, working with us, focused on many, many different types of things that we need to know about long-term undercover before we step on the stage. And one of the things that was very, very clear to me was that if I showed a fear these people that I'm dealing with are like it's it's like when you walk down a sidewalk and there's a dog that somehow I mean, you're scared to death and you're probably giving off body language that's showing that you're scared. They're going to bite you. Uh, you've got to be able to control yourself because these people have a sixth sense. They will pick up on the slightest nuances, not just your body language, the words you use, how you use them. Um, there's all kinds of curveballs that are being thrown at you, and, and thankfully to to Bobby, Joe, and many other people, um, my ability to be able to handle that in a stressful situation I think was improved to a certain extent. I've heard from former undercover[s] like Mike Levine, uh, Mike, uh, yeah, Mike Levine, who um, former DEA agent, and um, his thing is that he believes that in order to do this type of work, you have to have a sense of street. And and I did come from an area that I think, um, you know, I didn't come up from the, uh, from the Upper East Side of of Manhattan. You know, I I was born and raised on Staten Island and my neighborhood was, uh, was a neighborhood where there were a lot of what people would generally call knock around guys, um, guys who would, would work for different crews and, you know, I didn't get near any of that stuff, but, you know, I was within that bubble and um, and I saw how they acted and I saw what their lifestyles were about. So and I had informants who were connected with organized crime. So uh, another thing that really helped me is I, I did law enforcement work for 14 years before I did real long term undercover. And I think that that's extraordinarily important. Uh, I had a lot of rooting Uh, in the job, I knew what money laundering was all about. I wasn't a newbie on the block. Um, and another thing that I think that really helped me, uh, is that I'd been at that stage married for, uh, 14 years and, um, and I had two children and I had things that were very important to me at home that kept me, I think, rooted that, um, who were luckily in an environment with a lot of my family around them and friends, that were able to give them support while I was uh, not able to be around a lot. So, you know, there's so many different things from so many different angles that, uh, that, it enable you to be able to withstand this stuff a little bit better than, than others. But you know what, everybody has a good day and a bad day. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that there was a day here and there <laughs> where uh, I probably raised a few red flags, but uh, you <laughs> do the best you can.
0: Robert, you spent five years as not just undercover, but deep undercover agent for the U.S., the U.K., France, and others gathering evidence that resulted in the largest money laundering prosecutions in history. As an undercover, there was private jets, houses in Tampa, houses in Miami, apartment in New York. Did this lavish lifestyle attract you at all?
1: You know, it's going to be hard for your listeners to believe this, but You have to look at, you know, what is important, what drives me. Mm. And by that time, undercover work, what drove me, information was my heroin. I I had been working in undercover capacities, being able to get information that led to, you know, in four or five conversations, I get enough and we seize more than a ton of cocaine. We're seizing millions and millions of dollars left and right. I'm getting information about, high, high sensitive stuff. I'm in rooms with people who are money launderers from Manuel Noriega, and I'm finding out where his millions are hidden around the world. And I'm dealing with those very same people. Um, That is what grabbed me. That's what made all the difference in the world to me. And I think because just like I hope 99.999% of the uh, law enforcement People in the world are motivated to become law enforcement officers. They become cops because they want to be part of making a difference. And I was mainlining difference doing long-term undercover. Um, there's a downside to that too. Uh, because information becomes addictive mm. and now I unless I get the next big piece of information, I mean, it's hard to get me high. Now I've got to get something twice the size that I got before. <laughs> so then you begin to start to take what you think are appropriate chances. And looking back on some of those risks that I took, um, there's no doubt in my mind from a tactical standpoint, had things not gone the way that I anticipated them to go, I could have paid the ultimate price, but um, thank God, you know, for, you know, in my view, there's two main reasons that I'm getting to do this show with you. One is that there was a higher power overlooking my safety. And, um, and the second is that I had the support of my best friend um, since we've been married, my wife. And um, I mean, I'm not a perfect husband by any means, but she meant the world to me. So did the kids, and um, and family. Uh, you know, in that order. You know, I have to say it: family, religion, um, and country are are things that are interwoven in my life. I mean, my dad was a World War II vet. He was very modest about his service. But he was in most of the major campaigns uh, in Africa, in Italy, in France. Um, My mom was a civilian employee of the military. Um, My brother served in Vietnam. I saw this as my responsibility to serve my country and to do something that I also enjoyed.
0: Your operation led to over 100 indictments and a tab of over $500 500 million that was paid by the Colombian drug cartel I know you didn't get directly to Pablo Escobar but in a sense Robert were you basically working for Escobar then
1: oh absolutely I I met in um, Paris for several days with some very high level people within the cartel one of whom um, is a lawyer was well he is a lawyer still alive uh, by the name of Santiago Uribe. Santiago was the uh, consigliere, the principal lawyer and counselor of uh, Pablo Escobar. And um, other people in the room dealt directly with uh, Escobar. One guy was in charge of um, acquiring the Medellin cartel's Air Force. Uh, he was a former commercial 747 uh, pilot. Um, and he was a very, very trusted guy who was a German Colombian whose father had migrated to Colombia after World War II. Um, And he spoke German, English, um, uh, Spanish, and and a couple of other languages. And um, he was so trusted and he spoke English so well that he was designated by uh, Gerardo Moncada, my main client. Gerardo Moncada was the principal manager for Pablo Escobar um for those of you and I know your your listeners have had the privilege of listening to uh, Steve Murphy and Javier Peña, the two people most responsible for um, what ultimately led to the demise of of Pablo Escobar and um, the Herrda moncada was the guy who managed 60 percent of Pablo Escobar's routes. The other guy was Fernando Galeano, who, Manage 40%. Those were my two principal clients. And for those of you that see Narcos, uh, last two episodes of the first year focuses on um, Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano in their role. And ultimately, they they made some big mistakes and um, put themselves in a position where Escobar thought that they were stealing proceeds that should have been shared with others in the cartel. And that led to them being summoned to the cathedral, the self-made jail of Escobar, where they were, by the accounts of one credible person who was there, uh, hung by their feet. Um, Their clothes were stripped off. Blow torches were used to melt the skin off their bodies. Then they were chopped up in smaller pieces and then burned into ash. And nobody has ever seen them again. Uh, He then went after their siblings and their co-workers in the Moncada and Galliano branches of the Medellin cartel. And uh, that started the internal cleansing by Escobar that led to those who survived um, becoming part of Los Pepes, the vigilante group that worked with the Cali cartel and certainly uh, some good reason to believe the Colombian national police and others to uh, to track down and ultimately uh, see Pablo Escobar killed. This is
0: my story. No symptoms to being diagnosed with colon cancer, which led to four surgeries and a 50-50 survival rate. It then spread to my liver in which only 3% are caught in time. Now, a 1% chance it ever comes back, and I'm on the road to inspiring everyone because you have three choices. Live, die, or fight. Bernie Siegel said, no matter what the statistics say, there's always a way. To book me, Tommy Canale, to speak to your event or group, Go to tommycanally.com. That's tommycannelly.com. And get ready to be inspired to inspire others because you're one day away from changing your life. Click the link in the show notes. Also part of your undercover operation, you infiltrated the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which was the seventh largest private institution in the world. They laundered billions of dollars for drug traffickers, terrorists. Robert, how and when did you find out the BCCI was in on laundering?
1: Uh, my, uh, my message to your listeners, especially those that are cops, yeah. Um, is that it, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good? Um, because for me, it was luck. Uh, I was being pressured by the cartel to ultimately pay out. They knew the money laundering system I was using. Um, I had met with them at length and they understood why it was quite uh, secure. Ultimate payout to them was in the forms of wire transfers and um, checks that were US dollar. Uh, checks and and uh, money wires, and these were accounts that I maintained within the borders of the United States in U.S. institutions. And they said, "Listen, there's a, a number of reasons that we want you to open accounts in Panama, in U.S. dollar denominations, because Panama uses the U.S. dollar as its principal currency, and so it's not uncommon to open U.S. dollar accounts there. And of course, it was for the secrecy." You know, it's it's uh, very difficult. It was virtually impossible at the time for anyone to pierce the corporate veils of secrecy of Panamanian corporations and Panamanian accounts and their bearer shares and and um and and the like. So, but what they ultimately told me was, and the other reason that we want you to open it there is because we've got Noriega in our pocket, and there's no way in hell that he's going to allow the U.S. to get at your accounts as long as you open them there. So now I got to open up an account. Traditionally, some people working undercover might turn to headquarters and say, Hey, we need undercover accounts in Panama. And they in turn might go to a say bank of America with branches there and go through their security and open up accounts. And I was vehemently opposed to that. My Position was I've spent years putting this front together. I should do the exact same thing that anybody seeking assistance from an international bank with a, through their pl- private client division would do: pick up the phone, call them, and um, explain that I need an account in Panama, and to a certain extent, explain why and see whether they'll open it up. So I'm driving down Ashley Drive in Tampa, and for those that are familiar with Brickell Avenue. It's a smaller version of Brickell. You know, every other building is a bank. And I saw this sign, big, huge gold letters, Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI. And I'm not a rocket scientist, but I go Bank of Credit and Commerce International. I bet you they have branches around <laughs> the world. So. <laughs> so I call them and I talk to an account relationship manager and I said, I'd like to open an account, um, but I'm going to need some assistance in Panama. Uh, Do you have branches there? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, Well, but before we can meet with you, we need certain things from you. We need three banking references, three business references, a copy of your resume, a resume and copies of your bank statements to show that you have at least a million dollars in play. I had all that. So I, I, I went to the meeting with that. They looked at it, said, great. And I'm sitting there talking to the guy and um, he was, I believe from Guatemala. And um, so I'm talking to him and then I explain, I said, listen, all of my clients are from Medellin, Colombia. They have businesses here in the United States that generate huge amounts of capital. And it's my job to help them to very quietly move that money across borders. Um, In this instance, they have money parked in Panama. They want to buy some property here, but they don't want to do it with their accounts. So they'd like me to open up an account and I'm going to receive that money and then transfer it to the States and make close on the deal. And the guy goes, well, do you have a need to move it in the other direction at times? And I said, most of the time. And he said, well, is it cash? And I said, yeah. And he goes, Only the stupid people get caught. Get yourself involved in as many cash businesses as you possibly can. We have helped people who work in the black market a lot. And we used to recommend Grand Cayman accounts, but Grand Cayman just signed a treaty with the U.S. I knew the treaty. It had to do with the U.S. government being able to get access to bank records of account holders that had drug proceeds in them. And he said, you know, Panama is where we recommend that you have it. You don't even need to go there. <clears throat> We've got all the paperwork right here. You just fill this out. We'll pouch it down to Panama. They'll assign a guide to manage your account, but I'll manage everything here. Um, so I did what the the likes of Bobby Delaney and Joe Pistone taught me to do in the undercover training. It was what I wanted, but I didn't want to act like, you know, a kid that was reaching for an ice cream cone. So I said You know, this is very sensitive business. And I I looked him right in the eye and I said, uh, I don't really know you. And I kind of just stopped there for a while. So he'd feel a little uncomfortable. (laughs) And I said, um, we need to get to know one another better. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll open up a U.S. checking account and and a CD here. Um, But I think the best thing for us to do is for us to meet for lunch more casual. Let me have one of my colleagues from Medellin come here. Now, this was going to be a bad guy. It was a bad guy who was a money launderer, but he had an import export business as a cover. And I knew that that was going to, when he met that guy, that was going to ring so many of the passive reinforcement bells that again, Bobby and Joe and others taught me, you know, if I want them to recognize that I'm dealing with the Medellin cartel out of Medellin, I can tell them that, but what better thing for them to do than to sit down with someone. And when you're a native Spanish speaker and you hear someone Spanish and they're from Medellin, they have, it's like when you run into somebody from Louisiana, you know, the Raysian Cajun, you're going to be, you, you know where they're from. So, <laughs> And this guy knew I wasn't playing games. This really was a guy from Medellin. When he gave him his business card, when they did due diligence. Yeah, he had an import export company down there. So so that's how I played it. And eventually I did open up um, accounts in Panama. And later I got lucky again because the money laundering process, which is too complicated to kind of go into right now, but it required me to sign these checks and leave everything else blank and get them to my co conspirators down in Colombia who filled in different portions of the checks at different times. And when that happens, people make mistakes. So I got a phone call one day from the guy in Panama from BCCI, and he says, Mr. Musella, I need your help. There's mistakes on two of your accounts. One, the payee is left blank, and the other one, the amount in words and the numbers doesn't match. It says 103,000. And the other says one hundred and three thousand five hundred. And I need to know who to pay on one account and how much to pay on the other. I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to call Columbia. You I know you realize that. So let me call you back. I did. And then the guy after I gave him the information, you know, I can almost see him leaning into the phone as he quietly said, you know, we need to meet. You're going to get caught. And I said, (laughs) "Uh, "Okay," And he said, we have a much better way for you to do this. And so he said, you know, I'm going to be in Miami next week. Would you meet with me? Sure. No problem. So I brought my trust re, trustee, trusty uh, briefcase recorder <laughs> and um, we had our meeting and he went through the whole thing and he knew exactly that we had some blatant discussions about um, the fact that it was drug money and that didn't do anything other than make sure that a few more steps were taken to make sure that the money was well uh, hidden And so um, and while I'm with him, he's never asking me for any kind of money under the table or anything. So I said to him, um, you know, I really do appreciate your help. But, you know, is there is there anything that I need to do for you? Oh, no, 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 no. We we handle this type of thing all the time. And I said, well, I'm going to have to keep the amounts somewhat low because you and I know that the us government is listening to all the phone calls between the us and panama they were after noriega big time by then especially the senate subcommittee led by john kerry and i said uh so i'm gonna have to talk in code you're gonna have to talk in code that's pretty risky um unless there's people here in the states that you deal with that's on your team and if there is then you know then i'll be more at ease." And I, you know, I can open up, you know, with more money. And he said, oh, of course, we have an inner team here. We have two gentlemen in, in Miami. Would you like to meet them? Sure. <laughs> so then I met them. <laughs> and um, and then again, like I like I said before, it's it's uh, better to get better to be lucky than good. And now I'm in the midst of all this laundering. We knew we had three or four officers that were definitely going to get indicted and most likely the bank. And but then all of a sudden, um George Bush wound up causing the U.S. dollar accounts of the country of Panama at the Federal Reserve Bank to be frozen. Well, that backed up all of the drug money that was flying through the U.S. dollar accounts in Panama. And people like me had money stuck because of the freeze that belonged to bad guys who don't want to hear anything about technical problems for why their money can't be paid to them. So now I go back to my buddies in Miami and I go, Hey guys, um, you have any alternate uh, methodologies here? Because I'm not sending another nickel to Panama and they go, Oh yeah. You know, we have people in, in uh, the UK and in Paris and the Bahamas and man, I'm meeting new people left <laughs> and right. And now I'm meeting with a board member who I have the blatant conversation with who brags to me about how BCCI has taken the best of the methodologies that they learned of the officers learned while they worked at other banks and, um, and we're now using them at, at BCCI. So it was all over. I had a dozen or so of them on tape. Um, and there's a legal concept, uh, whereby, um, it's, it, it is what establishes, corporate liability, um, for a corporate client. If the individuals who are employed by the entity are carrying things out, doing illegal acts that are consistent with the policies and procedures of the entity, then the entity becomes responsible to them, uh, to the government, uh, under the statute for the acts of the employees. And so with that theory, um, we were then able to charge the bank itself as well. The bank pled guilty and then the bank officers went to trial and they were all convicted.
0: Robert, we are listening to you tell this story when you were infiltrating banks and the underworld of all these bad people. But can you speak to the importance of how over 250 agents whose names will probably never be released and not just the United States, but
1: the UK and other countries that kept you alive. Sure. And and let me say that the book, The Infiltrator and the book, The Betrayal and the and the acts that occurred that create those those uh, books would never have occurred absent a team. And I was blessed in so many ways I had to start with my in, in the infiltrator story. My partner, Amir Abreu, who's played in the film by John Leguizamo, is bar none. And I know Joe and and um, Bobby will take exception to this. But Amir, in my view, because I never really worked close. I didn't work closely with them undercover, so I, I, I can't say for certain. But my feeling is that Amir Abreu is the most talented undercover agent that I have ever met and dealt with undercover in my entire life. Um, I'm this anal business administration finance major who's now a cop who dots I's cross T's and and approaches law enforcement somewhat from kind of the accounting perspective, the CPA perspective. Amir, on the other hand, walks in a room and everybody in the room immediately goes, oh, that's a bad guy, because he just is phenomenally talented. I couldn't do what he did. I don't think he could have done what I did. And that's what makes a team strong. Diversity, different talents, different abilities. Um, that's why uh, we were able to achieve uh, what we ultimately achieved. My my initial um, boss on the top of this this matter, a guy by the name of Paul O'Brien, who was the ASAC uh, in customs, now Homeland Securities in in uh, Tampa, Um He had been a friend of mine for years and years and years, and he trusted me. And when I designed the because I designed the undercover operation that tells the story of the infiltrator, it's called Operation Sea Chase. When I did it, I designed it to have a budget that was like ten dollars underneath the budget that would have shot it from requiring statewide authority to oversight by Washington. Uh, I think the the number was thirty thousand. I think my budget was twenty nine thousand nine hundred and fifty bucks, and and I did that purposely because I didn't want this to become a political football, and um, and Paul supported that, and we were able to accomplish a a tremendous amount, I think, because we we had control for at least uh, the first half of the operation um, through a close knit group. Another thing was a fantastic prosecutor, an agent's prosecutor. And we had him involved from day one. We didn't wait. You know, I, I remember, I know sitting down with so many prosecutors who don't get the benefit of being involved during an investigation. And they say, you know, they referring to the case kind of as an airplane. He goes, they go, you know, I don't build them. I just fly them. Um, this, this is a case where we had the prosecutor involved in building the, the case as well. Uh, Mark Chikowsky, who is one of the most talented prosecutors that's ever stepped foot in a courtroom. Those are the type of just unbelievably talented team players uh, that were, were, were on our team and, and made this all possible.
0: Unfortunately, you get betrayed by a former colleague who was actually on the payroll with the Cali cartel and compromised your identity what I would like for you to talk to my listeners about is a, how did you know your identity was compromised? And B, how did you get out of it?
1: To stay consistent with the book, because I don't want to give it away too soon in the story. um, There came a time when I received a phone call from, um, I think it was the ASAC in Fort Lauderdale for DEA. And uh, I learned that there was a DEA informant at the very highest levels of the Cali cartel to whom a promise had been made that she would never be exposed as a DEA source um, and just would feed intelligence to DEA. And that during a meeting, a meeting that occurred with one of the money brokers that I had first developed a rapport with in the, story that makes up the story of the betrayal that they knew that I was a DEA undercover agent and that they knew it because one of the people with whom I was dealing and they gave enough about the person to make it obvious to me and to my other colleagues who that agent was, that he was a part of their organization. And now the problem is, we know it's him, but we don't have any evidence. We don't have a witness. Mm. Um, and I was convinced that the only way that we would be able to get the, the irrefutable evidence would be for me to continue to stay under. Um, I had some pushback, but I had a tremendous leader. Leader in the DEA Tampa office by the name of Mike powers, who's a legend in DEA rightfully so. And, um, and Mike said, okay, you get 90 days, but that's it. Um, And you're, and I said to him, Mike, you know, I just need to make one more trip to Columbia. And he goes, he, he screamed at me. He was like, Are you out of your effing mind? There's no way you're going to go down there again. You're crazy. He goes, you know, I'll let you go to Panama, but your coverage is going to be a little, is going to be more than it was. And, you know, you can continue to doing what you're doing, but dude, there's no way you're going to Colombia again. Um, so the guys who knew who I was were limited to, a certain portion, I would say not quite 10% of the targets I was dealing with. And I hadn't finished pulling things together on some of the others. And, um, and so that was another motivation that I, that, that kept me focused on wanting to, to uh, stay under. And, um, but ultimately the plan worked. Uh, we did some, <laughs> we did some pretty good stuff when, when the, the case went down, I had, I had disinformation, this person, they, I, and I knew, you know, probably the tough, some of the toughest undercover work that I ever did was sitting there with this person who was supposed to be an ally and who was a Benedict Arnold. I mean, he was, Definitely just a a crook Mm -hmm. and and to deal with him and to continue to play along as though he was my friend um, was a a little bit of a challenge, but I knew that he was going to ask me when the operation was going to be over because that's, that was critical for the bad guys down South to know. So when he asked me, I had this plan and, And I told him it was going to be in June of a particular year when it was actually going to be in February of a particular year. And when the case went down, my boss invited him to come back to the office and said, Hey, you know, we had to unexpectedly take this thing down. And, um, and so, but, you know, you, I know you haven't been involved in the case for a year and a half, but, um, but you were so important to it before. And, we're going to have a party at the hotel and we'd really like you to come. We're just going to have a drink here tonight. And um, he goes, well, you know, I don't know. I'm, I've really got a lot of work to do back, back at the office. And um, so I'm really not going to be able to make it, but, you know, great and blah, 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 blah. We already had uh, a chopper up there with a gyro um, camera in it that from 2,500 feet and a quarter of a mile down range, we could read a, tag number on a car. And, um, and we had other surveillance in the air and we had ground and, and that surveillance proved it, you know, as was very good corroborating evidence. And, um, and then we did certain other things af- after that, that uh, enabled us to have the irrefutable evidence that, um, that it was him. And um, that was the most important case that um, I was ever able to be a part of um, because there's no telling this is somebody who would have been in law enforcement for another nearly 20 years. And um, when you go down that slippery slope and you rationalize the first time you did something that was a little bit over the edge, you go further and further down that slippery slope each and every time and I'm convinced that it could have led to the loss of life within the law enforcement community. If we had not taken him down and, um, and and put him behind bars um, for more than a decade. So uh, it was an important case.
0: Yes, it was listeners. Please go to the show notes. I'm going to put links where you can get your hands on both of Robert's books, the infiltrator and the betrayal please do yourself a favor, grab them, read them, watch The Infiltrator. I'll put a link there as well. Robert, away from the case now, in your opinion, how out of control is the illegal drug industry in today's world?
1: Oh, it's grown exponentially um, since the 1980s and 90s when I was doing undercover work. Um, the cartels then owned company, uh owned countries, Uh, But they own many more of them now. Uh, We see headlines such as at uh, the end of this year where we extradited Juan Antonio Hernandez, the president of Honduras, um, who right up until the very end of his reign as president uh, last year um, was part of a group, including senators within Honduras and businessmen who sold their entire country to the Mexican and Colombian cartels. His brother's doing life in prison. Undoubtedly, he will um, ultimately find that. Um, Last year, we also uh, indicted a guy by the name of Juan Antonio Hernandez, who at the time of his indictment was the defense minister for the entire country of Mexico, who was Working hand in hand with a Mexican cartel. And unfortunately, due to the um, political pressure from the Mexican government, they suggested that they would be able to, um, in alliance with their sovereignty, bring him to justice in their country. They just needed him in the evidence. And they got him in the evidence. And within 30 days, their review of the evidence suggested that, uh, hey, no, no foul here um, and no charges were ever brought against him. And uh, I'm sure he'll never make the mistake of stepping foot into the United States again. Um, but we have to also look at horrors like the fact that last year, 107,000 residents in this country died from overdoses of fentanyl. Um, that fentanyl trafficking is not just because of the mexican cartels or the colombian cartels it's an alliance it's the end result of an alliance between the mexican cartels the colombian cartels um, terrorist groups like al-qaeda and and in addition chinese triads that control the unregulated pharmaceutical companies in china that pump this garbage out Uh, the chemicals the precursor chemicals for methamphetamine um, China is a major, major player, not just in the drug trafficking world, but also in the money laundering world. And so they have this ability to get get along better than we do um, within the structure of the United Nations. The good guys, that is. Um, and and um, so many of those uh, those cartels are alive and well. I remember uh, doing work that related to Canada while I was undercover. And, you know, it's a fact that the ports in Canada are controlled by Canadian, Italian um, or Italian, Canadian uh, organized crime. And the, and the biker gangs that are there, they've controlled them for decades and continue to control them. Um, There is, uh, there's a lot more to doing something about stopping or, or minimizing this problem, then there is um, what we're do, you know, what we're doing currently. But for those of you who, who are looking for a light at the end of the tunnel, I must say that um, especially those cases that I mentioned with respect to Honduras and Mexico, my brothers and sisters in the Special Operations Division of DEA, and that's a small group. You know, that's like three groups uh, within SOD that work closely with um, their counterparts in the intelligence division, the military intelligence, as well as our allies with those same functions. And um, they're doing fantastic work. But unfortunately, you know, I, um, I say that every snake that we cut the head off of grows too. And, um, and we've got to look ourselves in the mirror and recognize that there are things that we're not doing effectively. And we need to be brave enough to make some changes.
0: In today's real estate market, you need to work with a real estate professional who you can trust. Amy Canale is a proud member of the Berkshire Hathaway home services network in Nevada. She will provide the absolute finest service, dedication, and expertise possible. Whether you want to buy, sell, or rent, Amy can help make your home ownership dreams come true to contact Amy call 480- 685-1217, 685-1217, go to her website, amycanally.com, or click the link in the show notes, BS 0146-092. Robert, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and coming on the show and being so open and honest about the questions I've asked. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope my listeners have gotten as much out of it as I have. Just thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Listeners follow me on Instagram at before the lights podcast. And if you'd like to get your hands on the podcast docu series that I did with Antonino D'Ambrosio in support of native American rights of the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community, go to before the slash docu series. And there'll be a link in the show notes in that as well. Thank you for listening to before the lights. I'm Tommy Canale and until next time, everybody I salute a chin chin.